0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third official Seven Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm here with my colleague, Seven Investing Lead Advisor, Steve Symington. Steve, happy April to you. Happy April, Simon. What a wild month it has been lately, right? The S&P is now officially down 12.4% in March and down 16.3% year-to-date. Again, today we're recording on April 7th. Those numbers jump around all over the place. Just with this amazing market volatility that we've seen, you can get whiplash from the day-to-day swings of this thing. But Steve, I think that we want to really focus today's podcast to reframe the conversation. Because we've been talking so much about the day-to-day moves, You know, what has the market done in the last three days, and what is it going to do in the next three weeks we're long-term investors though, so I think it makes sense for us to reframe the conversation on the next three years and even longer term because that's how you should really be in measuring investing performance.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, that's that's one of those uh, those things you see. There's so much uncertainty out there. Everybody's trying to time the market bottom. And I, I've sort of facetiously asked a couple of times on Twitter and polls, you know, has the market bottomed yet? And uh, and, and nobody knows for sure. Uh, but everybody's striving for this sense of normalcy. And I think by focusing on the long-term, we can look at, you know, what what really makes sense and, and when things become much more predictable.
0: It is. It's so hard to time the bottom, like you said. But we are starting to see that, at least in our opinion, this coronavirus pandemic is starting to really permanently change some things out there. Uh, whether we catch the bottom, you know, what's going to ever happen in the next week, we don't really know. But we are starting to see some of these bigger picture trends That are developing and really as investors we want to find the companies that are poised to benefit from some of those developing trends and so for today's podcast we're going to jump into four of those trends um, and talk about them more in detail and try to give investors a feel for what we think could be some good opportunities out there and Steve I'm going to kick it over to you to talk about the first one of those trends we're spending a lot more time at home these days But there could be an opportunity for the companies that are making it easier for us to stay at home.
1: Yes. So Matt Cochran, our our colleague, shared a Gartner survey earlier this week that shows 74% of CFOs say they're now planning to move at least 5% of their previously on-site employees to permanently remote positions. And for many people, that means working from their homes. Now, we've done that for a while. It's nothing new to us, but there is going to be uh, a shift in um, products and services, I think, that make it easier to stay at home. Now, uh, that is that it's so broad reaching but some of the industries that really come to mind right away are uh things like smart home devices e-commerce of course home robotics grocery pickup and delivery restaurants are trying to adapt now A few names that come onto my radar right away to that end are are Alphabet, the parent company of Google and Amazon uh, with their Google Home and Echo devices respectively. Now with Amazon, it's interesting because we'll get a double whammy uh, of an e-commerce leader and a cloud computing giant who appears to be thriving through all of this adversity. And with Alphabet, the parent company of Google, we have this massively profitable internet search leader who might get hammered in the near term if it ad- advertising revenue wanes, but you know they also had almost $120 billion in cash on their balance sheet at the end of the quarter. I, I think they'll be just fine uh, over the long term. But in both cases, their smart home ecosystems and those smart home devices should serve, I think, to create a virtuous cycle of consumers moving further toward their own products. Now... Uh, <clears throat> when I'm talking about Google, though, uh, another company that really pops into my head uh, that's been on my radar for a long time, I've, I've owned shares for a long time personally, is uh, is iRobot. They struck a smart home partnership with Google last year, it turns out. And uh, they're iRobots, best known for their Roomba robotic vacuums. Uh, they also sell a popular line of floor mopping and sweeping bots called Brava. And they've got a robotic lawnmower coming later this year, assuming the current supply chain uh, disruptions haven't really hurt that. But it was really a limited commercial release that they were talking about. That robotic lawnmower is going to be called Terra. Um, But uh, over the longer term, it should be really interesting, I think, as they shift toward uh, becoming this kind of centerpiece of smart home technology. And they even confirmed earlier this year they're developing a household helper like a butler style robot with arms, Uh, but it'll be several years uh, before anything like that's commercialized. But I think there is massive long-term potential for a company like this to succeed. Now uh, in the near term though, uh, they are working on positioning Roomba as this sort of central unifying, unifying piece uh, that can collect intelligence on various aspects of smart homes. And I think as people are home, and uh, home more, and they're looking to make their lives easier at home, uh, iRobot could be a really interesting play on that.
0: Yeah. Uh, So Steve, you know, discretionary spend obviously favors Alexa, and I can't say that too loudly, or she's going to try to respond in the back of my home too. (laughs) Mine just lit up. (laughs) And and iRobot, you know, cleaning up our homes, but even in the more immediate term, I mean, people are now eating from home a lot more too, right? And I mean, what do you think about uh, dining or the restaurant industry?
1: Yes, so I, I'm i I'm really wary of casual dining names. I mean, you look at companies like Darden Restaurants, uh, they just suspended their dividend and their guidance for the full year. Uh, they should be able to pull through, but I think they're really gonna get hurt. Uh, some, um, you know, others like Texas Roadhouse, they're drawing from their credit facilities to bolster their balance sheets. There's bankruptcy concerns with other, other names. Um, but more importantly, what I want to know is whether these companies can bounce back when can, when, and if consumer dining habits return to some semblance of normality. Uh, I've personally tried to support locally owned casual dining restaurants through all of this with the occasional takeout order when we might otherwise have gone out to eat. I don't know. Maybe it's me being sentimental, the community coming together, but, uh, I've been kind of avoiding some of those bigger chains. Um, but it makes me kind of, uh, shift toward companies I think that that are, are particularly well suited to uh, benefit from takeout models companies like uh, Chipotle or, or fast food companies, uh, your McDonald's out there. Um, so that's that's kind of uh, I guess what I think investors should be watching on the dining side but casual dining makes me kind of cringe a little bit right now. Uh, the,
0: the fast yeah. casual is becoming more important because it's yes. more better geared for delivery or, or
1: taking. Yeah. I think they were really well set up to begin with. Um, so yeah, in the dining space, that's really interesting. Um, but the other thing that, that pops into my mind at this point is really all of these are, they've been deemed essential businesses, but you know, they're arguably not really yeah. essential. Uh, a lot of them are consumer discretionary names. So Simon, uh, that could bring us to our second topic. What else might come to mind that's absolutely essential and appears it may be undergoing possibly permanent change through all this?
0: Yeah, and that's a great segue to the topic that I wanted to talk about, which is healthcare, right? Like very essential, obviously healthcare, very important for everybody uh, across the entire country, completely different than discretionary spend. Mm. But here, this coronavirus has now really exposed, I I think some serious issues in our current healthcare system that we had. And you know, if you know if you could talk to any doctors, any nurses, anyone who's working in a hospital right now, a lot of them are saying that it's just chaotic. It's overcrowded, there's a ton of people, they're trying their best to handle things that they can. Uh, but even if you if you look before this coronavirus pandemic, we we're spending three point six trillion dollars in twenty nineteen on healthcare. And that's nearly 17% of our country's overall GDP. Mm. And it's built you know on top of this this physician fee schedule which is basically reimbursement directly for whatever the tests that are performed are based on the nature of those tests and that's that's 17 of our gdp before we go through this chaotic nature that is coronavirus future that we're in now uh, where we've got even more people that are needing medical attention um, all of them can't can't pay up front either they have limited insurance payments or they've got to self-pay out of pocket entirely and in the short term, you know, the government is, is picking up um, a lot of those costs. They're assisting to cover the costs so that we can get through this, this current stressed period that we're in. And it makes sense because this is such a chaotic time. But you think longer term, is this sustainable uh, for a country that's already spending $3.6 trillion a year? Yeah. And I just don't think that continues. I think that, um, you know, Medicare is already paying lower rates for hospitals, uh, which are already kind of at break even or operating at a loss today. Um, so either the payments have to go lower, which really hurts the hospitals, or you revert back to the, uh, the current payments that are kind of supported by private insurers. But if you're self-paying or you have limited insurance, you know, sometimes you can't afford for, for those things. So it's, it's a challenging situation right now um, for all parties involved in healthcare, Steve. So what do you think, what kind of changes do you think we'll see to the healthcare system? Oh, well, I think that, you know, the bigger picture is that we we just have to have a, a more proactive system. We have to, we have seen the shock right now that something like the coronavirus can provide to the system that we have. And we need to be more proactive where we're keeping patients healthy and keeping them out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still focus hospitals on really severe conditions, uh, pandemics. I mean, there's still definitely a very important role for hospitals, but we're going to have to get smarter about treating those, those less serious conditions and keeping um, the volume of patients that are going to hospitals a little bit lower than we are today, and so I, I, I kind of see three things that are going to they're going to benefit from this and play a role in this. And the, the first of those is wearable technologies. You know, we've seen a lot of these kind of wearable devices that were originally kind of you know doing heart rates and steps. You know, things like the Fitbits and you know kind of consumer facing devices. Uh, But we're starting to see more and more data get collected from those wearables. You've now got Google developing wearable devices. You've got Apple making this a high corporate priority um, because there's more and more information that is really feeding hospitals. Uh, When you combine that with an an electronic health record, we combine that with an insurer's patient claims data, you start to get a a better feel uh, for, for what is most important for a patient to be doing. And this is this is this is something that's a data science play all the way, Steve. Fifty um, percent of your health is your lifestyle itself, and we already know this. But we've got to we've got to datafy this. We've got to make something out yeah. of this that consumers can really get interested in. I think that diagnostic companies are also going to be very important in this, where we're actually able to diagnose conditions uh, proactively. You can use a blood test now to detect circulating tumor DNA of, of cancers, which is amazing, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other conditions and this is really opening the door for telehealth appointments. Uh, we've seen companies like Teladoc that are starting to work with insurers to provide consultations in your home uh, where you can have sensors that are taking readings for doctors to interpret, and it doesn't require you to be in the hospital to actually have those those more normal consultations and those more normal diagnostics, things for like rashes, coughs, you know, things like that. Um, you don't need to, have a lot of those patients in the hospital to treat those kinds of things.
1: You think it might help, uh, actually prevent these things from spreading too with the, you know, the the rashes and your coughs, like, Oh, don't come in. I'll come, I'll see you remotely. Yeah.
0: And and then how about the accessibility, right? For, for prescriptions and the drugs to treat those kinds of things that are not life threatening or, or super serious. I mean, we're starting to see minute clinics pop up in grocery stores now where you can get, um, you know it's simple diagnostics and get prescriptions right there at the same place CVS CVS has been on this for several years trying to fix this problem uh, and then the pharmacies you know a lot of those are either attached in areas that are really close to patients or they're actually starting to do more and more mail order pharmacies uh, you see this is something that Amazon's taking really seriously right now yeah. and so i and so i guess overall steve my my takeaway for the healthcare system is that we have pushed the hospital system almost to its limit hospitals and doctors, very, very important to healthcare, but we've got to find a way to to make this a little bit easier for patients to do either at home or in their neighborhoods rather than really spiking. Mm -hmm. Um, The hospitals are already at maxed out anyway.
1: Yeah. And I I guess that's a perfect seg into our our next topic. Hospitals aren't the only thing being pushed to their limits. Now, uh, the internet itself is being pushed to its limits. So, um it's really just been strained under under the demands of a world working learning and playing from home uh actually Cloudfare ceo matthew prince noted a couple of weeks ago that uh, video streaming in south korea and italy nearly doubled once their social isolation policies were instituted wow. vodafone recently said there was an increase in internet usage of as much as 50% in several european countries now This naturally draws many investors to uh, consider leading hardware infrastructure plays. Now, companies like Corning come to mind with their huge optical communication segment. Now, these are a little harder, though, um, for companies looking to sort of rapidly deploy solutions to meet this. The timing of the most significant hardware infrastructure projects isn't exactly steady or convenient for them to roll out. Uh, though they could be good long-term plays, uh, but more than likely, I think the current challenges with internet infrastructure will highlight the need for content delivery networks, CDNs, and edge computing leaders. There's companies out there that work to solve this, like, fastly. Uh, there's another company that I recommended uh, in our April group of, of picks. I won't name it here because we just released those picks last week for our subscribers. Um And it also uh, brings cybersecurity to mind. Though, you know, not all cybersecurity companies are are created equal, uh, Palo Alto Networks actually warned that they're going to endure some supply chain disruptions in Asia uh, resulting from the pandemic that could hurt their results. Uh, They've been relying on acquisitive growth in recent quarters. Um, That's actually another thing uh, that we'll probably see more of um, is companies that are well-positioned to do so, actually making acquisitions uh, when the prices are right, But, you know, then another company, FireEye, uh, had repeatedly disappointed investors for the past, you know, what seems like a few years leading up to this pandemic anyway. Uh, But maybe this could be a spur for demand for a lot of these these, uh, cybersecurity companies and accelerate this transition toward a more comprehensive um, security solutions companies. Uh, Another company on my watch list in the cybersecurity space is actually Zscaler. It's ticker ZS. Uh, could be even more interesting actually given its its focus on cloud native security, uh, particularly intriguing for me as more enterprises transition their networks and security requirements to the cloud. Zscaler um, stock is actually held up pretty well. Uh, it rebounded pretty hard as its potential strength is really no mystery uh, to opportunistic investors, but uh, I would consider maybe watching that one for uh, maybe opening a position or adding to it on pullbacks. Um, of course, one of the most obvious trends, I guess, um, you know, we're talking about the internet being constrained, uh, pushed to its limits. Um, but one of the most, the, the, the biggest, I guess, sucks of the resources there uh, is demanding the bandwidth is digital streaming. Um, now, Simon, I, I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on how streaming content providers can survive and thrive in this kind of new normal.
0: Yeah, sure, Steve. And, and just to, to touch base real quick on what you just said, those content delivery networks, that edge computing, this is kind of a new internet infrastructure you're seeing go into place to handle all the all the bandwidth. Did, did I hear that
1: correctly? You know, all these companies you mentioned are kind of gearing yeah. up for uh, more and more traffic going across the yeah. internet. And, and not only, you know, the physical infrastructure itself, but uh, software infrastructure that is underlying it to make things more efficient. Because, you know, like I said, we're not going to have... Um, you know, a lot of those big hardware infrastructure projects can't be rolled out immediately. And it's only going to further highlight the need for these um, software infrastructure plays that actually make things more efficient, especially in the near term. They're, they're scrambling to find a way to streamline uh, the way the internet works. And old infrastructures just don't cut it anymore. And uh, they, it's, it's time for uh, the new uh, that will be coming in so you'll you'll see uh some of the best opportunities come from there so it's still picks and shovels but they're much smarter picks and much smarter shovels now y- exactly
0: so fair yeah. enough okay <laughs> yeah the uh like you mentioned about the bandwidth i mean that this is kind of a new trend that we see it also the, the fourth trend that i wanted to mention is exactly that that we're just starting to see such a ridiculous amount of bandwidth across the internet all across the globe going to digital video streaming now. Uh, we looked at last year's uh, Global Internet Phenomena Report. This is provided by Sandvine. And it, it told us that 60% of the total downstream volume of traffic on the internet is going to video now. <laughs> and one company in particular, you probably heard it before called Netflix accounts for 13%, about 12.6% of the total downstream volume of traffic across the entire internet. So wow. 13% of the world's internet is going to, to net. Netflix, streaming your videos out there. I've never heard of it. What's Netflix? <laughs> a small company from here in California. Uh, but I mean, that's amazing, right? That, you know, that is, that is what is, um, that's what people are watching over the internet. It's video, it's content that's being streamed. Netflix has permanently changed the media industry and we already know that. But I think that this is a bigger trend that is beyond just Netflix now and is really spreading to the entire media industry. And of course, we're at home now so what are we doing for entertainment we're watching tv um there's no live sports to watch Uh, there are you know you can watch reruns of the best games from the last 10 years there's no new tv shows that are coming out that are live right now we've got reruns of every tv show you could possibly watch And so what is everybody watching? Well, we're firing up our over-the-top streaming apps. You know, we're starting to see our favorite Netflix shows or our Disney Plus, you know, is something. But but, but even more than that, it's not just these subscription-based, pay $7 a month, pay $15 a month. It's more and more um, advertising-supported content that we're starting to see. Everybody now has a streaming app, and people are starting to recognize the kind of content that they like. And it's being personalized to them. And what we've seen, Steve, is there's a couple of companies that have really figured out this whole personalized ad-supported streaming um, movement that we're under. And and one of those that I really want to talk about here today is connected TV. This is where your television uh, is is. Um, tied into the internet so it actually knows who you are as a demographic that's watching that and it's wanting to serve you advertisements that are personalized to you individually rather than just kind of what you kind of think people might be watching on on the the cable TV stations we got used to in the past and this is an industry that as a whole connected TV spent about or attracted about seven billion dollars of advertising spend last year and 40% of that came from YouTube that was being shown on connected TV. Another 30% was being shown on ads that were uh, published by Hulu and Roku, uh, which again are are really early movers for this connected TV. And then 30% is everybody else, right? So you've got some really early first movers with Google alphabet and then with, uh, with Disney through Hulu and then also Roku.
1: Those are some staggering market share numbers too. You wouldn't believe, how much uh, i mean i've got a nine-year-old our, our middle middle child and, and we're it's always hey no youtube like that's enough youtube today like i'll get up and i'll hear the tv downstairs turn on i'm like dude like turn off the youtube and and he'll just fire it up on on his you know fire stick and and uh he would watch it 24 7 if he could so
0: it changed advertising though right i mean the personalization of those ads like you're saying is now going across all demographics no matter how old you are uh you can have an ipad that's plugged into youtube and watch watch shows on that you can have it on your tv through a connected tv Um, the even more mind-boggling statistic to me was from bloomberg last year that showed that even though that seven billion dollars that was going to that ctv ad spend sounds like a lot that's still far less than 10 percent of the overall TV ad budget that we're seeing. That everything. seems incredible. You'd think it'd be so much more, but, but, um, but, 30% of our viewership is now going through streaming apps. Um, so uh, there's a disconnect in how much money is actually being spent versus how much time we're spending on those streaming apps that are out there right now.
1: So who wins? from all that's
0: that's that's the question right i mean the investor in me is saying oh my gosh there's a huge opportunity to start reaching people with more personalized ads the goal of any advertisers to get someone to convert to actually buy your product and i think that i kind of classify this trend into kind of three three buckets if you will uh the first is is the content is king bucket right disney still has frozen and People are still gonna watch Frozen, whether it's on an <laughs> iPad, on, on your computer, on your TV, wherever it is. And so the biggest publishers are still going to attract the most advertising. And they're going to win from that because they've got the best content. Content is always still gonna be king. So that one hasn't changed, Steve. We've known that for a long time now. Right. The, uh, the, the second and the third bucket though, in my opinion, for the media landscape, are both related to this move towards programmatic advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not just a large advertising agency selling ads in bulk to um, the TV channels that you that you think people are going to be watching and then kind of subjectively getting a little bit of data on that. This is a big open internet now that's going across all sorts of media um, and we're placing those ads much more efficiently. And so for the people placing the ads, which we call demand side platforms, uh, this is something that you can start really tunneling down into the ROI and you can really see, okay, what is each one of my ads that I'm placing worth and how can I do this in the most efficient way so that I can maximize my return on my investment of those. And Steve, we've seen a, a company rise to prominence in that. You already know which company I'm talking about, yes, it's I called do the, the Trade Desk is, is a company that's really has has risen to become a leader in this space of an independent demand-side programmatic advertising platform Um, that's a huge trend that when you see that disconnect between the spin today and the viewership it's just going to continue i think to to gain traction Mm -hmm. and then the last one uh to continue my monologue on on streaming tv here i I think that the other side of that is (laughs) going to be on the publisher side of it right the supply side the 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 platforms that are representing everybody who has a streaming app out there right now that has a brand and they want to attract a certain type of, of, of advertisement, but they also want to do it efficiently in a way that gets them the highest price per ad that's placed. Um, And this is where you're starting to see companies like what was previously called Talaria just recently merged and now is called the Rubicon project. Um, Really, really rising on the supply side of this. Uh, because they want to work with the publishers to make sure they're getting the best rates possible. And just see so many of those coming out there. They don't want to work with 25 different platforms. They want to work with a handful that have already got connections with all these these advertising companies and are getting them the greatest rates. Um, so, that's, you know, you've that's got really a
1: fantastic network effect for them, too. You absolutely. Know, they're already connected.
0: Yeah. So content demand side and supply side. I mean, we're going to see a lot more ad budgets shifting to the, uh, to the streaming space, I think. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, I, I guess that kind of uh, pulling all of these together, those are our four themes, if you will, that we see in the in this post coronavirus world. We talked about the at home opportunities. Uh, any final thoughts on that one, Steve? This was your trend. You you mentioned Alphabet. You mentioned Amazon. You mentioned iRobot. Any final thoughts for investors on that trend? I think it's um,
1: the, it's a bit of a moving target. Uh, And I think a lot of it will depend on the extent to which we see this shift stick. Because right now, uh, you know, I think especially in in the next few months, uh, we're going to see the impact uh, on a more maybe pronounced basis uh, of people. You know working at home everybody's stuck at home right now and uh we're all kind of getting through this but again everybody's sort of striving for that sense of normalcy for these social isolation policies to go away um but until then uh we won't know exactly how uh pronounced the shift will be but i there will be a shift Uh, i i'm i'm pretty comfortable saying confidently uh that that will happen and uh, i think it's up to um up to us to to really keep an eye on exactly uh, how that plays out and where the best opportunities lie uh, between now and then
0: and fair to summarize that that we are spending more time at home now so we're going to have more smart devices to help us make the most of that time that's fair (laughs) that's the best I've got at least in my (laughs) 10,000 foot level view of what you said uh, the second trend was, was healthcare and we talked a lot about wearable devices. We've been talking about that trend for a long time, but I don't think until you actually have a company large enough, like an apple, like a, like a Google that's really, and you started to see some stories from this of them really working closely with yeah. hospitals, um, to try to take healthcare beyond the hospital's walls. I, I think we're really starting to see that. And I didn't mention a whole lot of the diagnostic names, but I, you know, one that's on my radar for a while now has been Gardent Health. Um, they are trying to characterize um, several different late stage cancers right now that they can be diagnosed through blood tests that are simple, simple tests that you can do uh, from anywhere. Um, something like that could really not only reduce the costs of just this diagnostic and testing industry that we have built out in the way that the world looks today, Um, but it's also going to save a lot of lives. If you can start detecting stuff like that earlier and proactively, um, reduce the cost for, for a hospital, but also really a huge benefit for, for patients to take it outside of the hospital too. Yeah. Uh, Steve, the third trend we talked about was, was the internet. The internet uh, has got kind of a new infrastructure behind it. You mentioned a couple of companies in cyber, cybersecurity and also the infrastructure plays any, any kind of final thoughts on that trend?
1: As far as, uh, I guess, pushing the internet to its limits, um, infrastructure plays. I mean, over the longer term, uh, we're going to see some, some big projects uh, you know, potentially come through as far as hardware infrastructure. But I think the the more intriguing trend and uh, potentially the more profitable trend, I mean, you're looking at uh, from a sheer gross margin standpoint, software versus hardware, uh, software, infrastructure, and efficiency. Uh, those those companies are are really kind of on the 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 center of my radar uh, and I think they should be they should be sort of at the top of investors minds as well
0: yeah absolutely and efficiency I'll carry that keyword to the fourth trend as well because I think that's what we're going to start seeing in media um, as things get unbundled from these large cable subscription packages to being over the top, uh companies like disney who have typically subsidized cable packages because everyone was watching espn and espn2 they now have a direct link you know to to feed you content directly to your home everyone else is figuring out the same thing and now it's a trade-off of volume versus price and we've got the tools in place that uh is allowing publishers to to be more efficient, like you said, Steve, and, and yeah. figure out the equation um, to maximize the profits that they're making. Media industry is changing very quickly right now. And I think that's even more so now that we're all, we're all watching TV from home no, that isn't. It's only market.
1: gonna accelerate that trend. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, those those companies that focus on um, seizing that acceleration um, for their long-term success are gonna be the ones that they really deliver uh, outsized gains. Um, for investors who know where to look.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So once again, uh, my colleague, Steve Symington, my name is Simon Erickson. We're both here with Seven Investing. We wanted to go a little bit deeper into a dive of four trends that we see developing for long-term investors right now. We are investing for the long-term. We are here because we want to empower you to invest in your future to accomplish those long-term goals. Thank you for tuning in. We are Seven Investing.